Hi there. Welcome back to the Out of the Cave podcast with Lisa Schlossberg. I'm your host, Lisa Schlossberg, a licensed social worker, certified health coach, personal trainer, and yoga instructor. If you, like I have, struggle with your relationship with food, eating, and body image, I am here with this podcast to guide you into healing the relationship you have with yourself through a trauma-informed, holistic, and mind-body-soul approach. Together, we can support you in building a lifestyle of more peace, freedom, safety, and power. Talked about that we didn't talk about in the last one. So if you listen to that one, which I hope you did or do before you proceed with the rest of this episode, um, you'll hear a lot about Julie and her story, but there are some things like intuitive eating and eating disorder recovery and intentional weight loss that we didn't get to discuss. So that's what we're here to do um, in more depth. And I'm excited because this is, again, one of those times where I just said to Julie before we record, I said, don't even, don't tell me anything. I don't know anything about how she's going to answer these questions. I don't know anything about how our beliefs align or don't. Um, And I'm very interested to find out in real time with you, listener. So that's what we have in store today. Thank you for being here. Julie, welcome back. How are you feeling being back here on the Out of the Cave podcast? I am so happy to be here, Lisa. We had so much fun last time. Yeah, we did. Okay. So Julie, very briefly, okay, I know you already introduced yourself a little bit. Is there anything else you want the people to know about like who you are coming into this before we dive in? Just as like a brief hello to the people. (laughs) Well, like I said last time, I am a therapist and coach. I specialize in complex PTSD, chronic pain, and I consider myself a somatic practitioner. Beautiful. Okay. So Julie, one of the things that you said to me recently, right before we hit record, but also before that, is you had some thoughts about what I said regarding trigger warnings. And if you haven't listened to it or you're not familiar with it, when I first... I believe it was one of the intentional weight loss episodes, right, where I shared some of my thoughts and opinions, beliefs about trigger warnings and how they um, have a place and don't have a place, in my personal opinion, in conversations like this about intentional weight loss um, and other things. So if you want to hear more about that, (laughs) please feel free to go back and listen to those episodes. But right before we hit record, Julie was like, and trigger warnings. Let's let's talk about that too. So again, no idea how this is going to go, but Julie, I'm curious if we open it up there. What is it that's coming up for you when you listen to me talk about trigger warnings that feels present? Well, I really loved your take on it. Uh, I don't know how often I've heard that. I think maybe I, I've seen a few people talk about how they're unnecessary, but when I listened to your episode, I really resonated with it because Personally, I think that trigger warnings are infantilizing. Um, I think that, yes, like we need to take care when we present information to people. And at the same time, it is the other person's responsibility who is listening, consuming, whatever, to take care of themselves, right? Because we, I think this happens a lot in in recovery from chronic pain and all of this stuff that people want to avoid their triggers and they think that that's going to keep them safe and it does keep them safe and it makes their world really small and it makes symptoms worse. And, 
I try to talk to people about this all the time that like, you're not going to get better if you're constantly avoiding your triggers. Yes. And that's exactly how I feel about it just in general. And I think it's really important that we're both coming from this place of thinking about the long-term benefit. So it's, it's like, it's not to say that it's, you know, it's not valid to want trigger warnings or to keep yourself safe and protected from your triggers. That makes all the sense in the world. It's just when it comes to things, especially like chronic pain and our relationship with food and eating in our bodies, which is another chronic relationship that we're in, like this is a lifelong thing. If we're living in a culture where there are so many messages about how you're supposed to eat and how you're supposed to look and what you're supposed to do and the way that we're engaging and reacting to those things is I can't listen to this. I can't be a part of this. I can't live in a world with this. To me, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, right? But the the way I interpret that is the conscious input that we then are sending to the brain is that it's not safe here. If we're always in a place of avoidance and running away from the things that make us uncomfortable, what is that doing? What how How is that teaching us, you know, how to actually be in relationship with it and be coexisting in a world with it? And that that's what I think for both of us is kind of underlying the belief system around trigger warnings is we're just looking at you have the rest of your life here. You have the rest of your life in your body. You have the rest of your life in this culture. You have the rest of your life with an Instagram account or whatever else it's going to be in 20 years. It's like this stuff isn't going anywhere. So it's a lot more empowering to look at it and be with it. And in the presence of it, remember that you are safe. You are safe. And it's it's okay. So that... <laughs> That's the deal with trigger warnings. Um, and again, invitation to go back because I I remember citing some studies and research that are now, um, I think, more and more just numerous that now that trigger warnings has been like a thing in the culture for the last decade or two, more than it ever was, um, there's more studies coming out about how it's actually potentially doing more harm than good in certain areas. Um, so anyway that's that is there anything else you wanted to add about triggers trigger warnings yeah I think that it's important there are a couple things I'm thinking are important one is for people who are completely unconscious about their triggers and what's going on with them like I think trigger warnings can be really helpful because someone probably doesn't know how upsetting something's going to be for them but for people who are more aware and working on themselves in a particular way, I think that it's important to push ourselves. And there's a difference between taking care of yourself and avoidance. Yeah. So it's like, how, what are my boundaries around this? Can I tolerate a little bit? What is that like for me? And really learning to build up a tolerance to handle information that feels activating. Very well said. Very well said. And that's an important point because I think you and I probably would both agree that at certain points in the journey, and we talked about this last time, that it's like there are, there are different seasons, there are different chapters of recovery. And like at a certain point, it's very wise for you to sometimes have the information from yourself that like it's not smart for me to listen to this podcast episode. 
because what Lisa's talking about in this podcast episode is intentional weight loss. And the season that I'm in with my eating disorder recovery is it's not time for that. Like I have to first start feeding my body and fueling myself. So it doesn't really make a lot of sense for me. It's not supportive for my long-term goal or intention of healing and recovery to consume this kind of content. Like, of course, but that doesn't mean that it's bad content that should be canceled from the internet in, in entirety. Um, because for a lot of people, it's not triggering, but it just depends on, you know, where we are. So I think that's another important point to always include in this conversation. It really is nuanced um, and it's very individual person centered and um, and determined by where you are as an individual. Um, which again, just goes back to what you said, it's taking responsibility for yourself. And rather than judging the content, really looking at what does it mean that it, you know, it brings up something in me personally. So well said, Julie, thank you for starting us off there. Okay, so from that place, <laughs> um, I want to continue the conversation about your own recovery from your eating disorder that you very bravely and vulnerably shared with us about on last episode. Can you tell me more about your relationship with intuitive eating and how that played a part in your recovery? Sure. Well, I think part of the way my recovery started was I learned about intuitive eating and I definitely didn't understand what it was. And I read a bunch of books and it, it's kind of a sad slash funny story. Like when I was in my process of deciding whether to recover or not, I would have all these books about intuitive eating and eating disorder recovery. And I'd open them, I'd open them and then I'd hide them. And I go back and forth between like, okay, I can look at this information. No, I can't. And it's actually a really good anecdote, I think, to talk about safety. Yeah. Because at the time, I had any awareness of that whole thing. It's like, oh, these books are unsafe. I have to put them away. Oh, they might be safe right now. And then I learned about it and I thought it was really interesting. I definitely had no idea how that would apply to me. And so when I went into my recovery I looked for a dietitian who specialized in intuitive eating. And again, I had no idea what this thing was. I thought that based on Instagram, that intuitive eating was like these beautiful rainbow acai bowls that you eat like this gorgeous salad every day. And that's what your body craves. And little did I know that at the time, what intuitive eating meant was eating 15,000 calories a day, something like that which is kind of crazy to think about, but it just meant eating as much as possible. And this is like the very beginning of my recovery. And I thought that like after two weeks of doing that, that like I'd get to the Instagram stage, right? That's like, oh, my body only craves this really nutritious food. <laughs> it didn't work like that at all. It was actually really horrible. Because I also did all of that research on the a weight science. So knowing the weight science was like, okay, well, I have to gain all this weight. And then this magical thing happens where my body regulates and 
things get better. Well, I was in for a really big surprise because I, again, kept thinking like, okay, if I eat these things and follow this, what my body's telling me to do, which I don't even know what my body was telling me to do because I was so ill, right? Yeah. yeah. So I rushed to intuitive eating like after, I don't know, a couple minutes, a couple minutes, probably a couple months of refeeding. Um, okay. So I don't want to cut you off, but I already have like way too many follow-up questions for you to keep talking. So the first is, can you talk a little bit more about your relationship with your eating, your intuitive eating books? Because I agree with you. I think that's a really important conversation to have because many of us have a relationship with healing and recovery where it's like, start, stop, start, stop, foot on the gas, foot on the brake. So whether that's about food and eating and intuitive eating or whatever, or, you know, any other drug or alcohol or any other compulsive tendency at all. I think it makes so much sense to kind of waver and go back and forth. And you know, as well as I do, what that means, again, regarding safety. So before we even get into it, into it, can you say a little bit more about what was going on for you and how do you interpret that now, knowing everything you know? What was going on for me at the time was I can't fathom the idea of gaining weight. Yes. Gaining weight is the worst thing that could happen to me. What I think about now is that we talked about fragmentation last time. Yeah. There's a part of me that was like, I have to do this. I have to do this or else I I can't live like this anymore. And then there's a part of me that's holding on to this thing that has kept me so safe for so long that by putting the books away, it's like, okay, I'm still safe, right? This information can't harm me. And it's kind of funny actually, because I would read them in the middle of the night when I was like out of it enough mm. to not be fully present. Mm -hmm. The brain is so brilliant how it how it does that. So thank you for sharing that. And I think, again, just putting it into perspective because people are going to relate to this. If your disordered eating is the thing that's keeping you feeling safe, it can feel like anything that's threatening that relationship is a saber-toothed tiger. So if you're listening to this and you're like, why did the books feel so unsafe? That's what's like underneath it, right? Is like, as you just expressed, there's one part of you that is clinging and holding on to the eating disorder. And then there's another part of you that's like recovery curious, right? So if it feels like those two things are competing with one another, the part of you that is feeling safe with the disordered eating is looking at intuitive eating books as a threat, a life-threatening predator because that's that's basically what's going on in the mind-body system. So again, just kind of adding that um, perspective and awareness, because I think that happens a lot with us. So also just validating, if you're finding yourself in that space of like taking a step forward and then taking a step back and taking a step forward, that's exactly how it quote unquote should be. You're not doing anything wrong. It's what you're doing is warming up your brain to this idea that you're not going to totally fucking die. And that's necessary 
that has to happen. So anyway, thank you for answering that. Now, my other question for you was when you say you learned about it, it being intuitive eating, was that reading the books that you had? If so, was intuitive eating, you know, the, the, I, sometimes I refer to it as like the Bible, like the intuitive eating by Evelyn Triboli. Like, was it that book? Was it like, how did you actually learn about it the way that you did? It's a good que question. It's a good question, Lisa, because I don't know. Um, I didn't read Evelyn Triboli's book eventually. I read, I think, Carolyn Coster's. Do you know what I'm talking about? I think so. Carolyn Coster or something like that. She wrote a book, like Eight Keys for Healing from Your Eating Disorder, stuff like that. And what I liked about this way I found, which involved intuitive eating, which I don't think it was necessarily like, intuitive eating is the thing it was like how do I heal my eating disorder here's uh -huh. some things I found and this book I'm talking about like the eight keys or something it talked about like that healing from your eating disorder is not about the food it's not about your weight it's about becoming a person and so when I read it and I was reading these anecdotes about these women that like they came into their power once they didn't have an eating disorder anymore. Mm. That got through to me way more than any of the eating shit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, because I remember reading this part where it was like this woman shows up at this conference and everyone sees her after she's recovered and they like see that she's like this whole person. And I'm like, but so where they think she, she was fat. Right. 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 It's like, that was what I took away. From. Yeah. Which is like so embarrassing, but also so normal, right? Totally. Because yeah. it's like, I think society tells us that a woman in her power is someone that's societally thin and like white. And, you know, whatever we've decided is this like empowered woman that we all want to be, right? But this book was like, this woman had eaten. And she'd taken on this like energy about her that wasn't like ill and keeping her soul small. Yeah. Yeah. Powerful. Thank you for sharing that. It's just another cool point because I have a couple episodes where I talk about intuitive eating and I always like to clarify the way that I see it is like there's intuitive eating, you know, the the organic like natural way that we are like listening to our bodies and stuff ways that intuitive eating are just, just like it just is what it is it's intuitive eating <laughs> and then separately there's intuitive eating like the movement that's rooted in you know the quote-unquote bible and the 10 steps and the the way of doing it and the framework so that's why i always get curious with people like what which one are we talking about you know like is it is it kind of like the dogma of that whole movement or is it like just finding a way back into your body or a little bit of both you know but I like to clarify that okay so my next question for you and I'll let you keep telling your story when you say you learned studied um about the weight weight science is is I think what you called it tell me a little bit I would imagine people who are listening to this who are like pause what does that mean What's the weight science? Tell me more. 
Yeah, I I learned about weight set point. I learned why diets don't work. I learned about the Minnesota starvation study, which mm-hmm. is really good, really important, uh, really helped me through my recovery, honestly. I think what I'm trying to say is what I learned was that I really can't control my weight. Yeah. And we're going to talk about it a little bit on this episode, right? Yeah. I can't control my weight in the way I thought I could. Yeah. So, okay. Amazing. I'm so excited for the second half of this episode. I don't even know what's going to happen, but I know it's going to be good because I think everything you're saying is really important in this conversation because I think you shared last time you were at a certain point, what, 90 something pounds, right? So that's really the nuance of the conversation is not we can't control anything about our weight period. Like that's the end of the story, the way some people will will suggest. What it really is, is that you were at a place where you were so underfed and malnourished that your weight was way too low for you to be in a state of health. That's what you are talking about when you're saying I couldn't control my weight, which is I couldn't control being under 100 pounds and living peacefully and freely at the same time. Right. Okay. And the Minnesota starvation study is something that I definitely talk about in one of the podcast episodes. And I can't remember exactly which one, but if you probably Google the out of the cave podcast and the Minnesota starvation study, you will find it um, because that's also very important too. And I think so um just valuable for anyone who's struggling with disordered eating and eating disorders to know about, um, which basically says if you start, uh, do you want to explain it a little bit? Sure. I, the way I understood it was that if you start restricting, you will essentially develop an eating disorder. Right. And these men who were healthy before started being obsessed with food. They started chewing gum. They started looking at like food recipes. They were obsessed with food. And then the part of the study that really helped me was that when they started refeeding them, they, their eating disorders went away. Yeah. And then the other part that really helped me, which is the weight science part of it, like they all gained weight over what they weighed before. And I don't really understand the science of it about how much fat you have to gain in order to get to a certain place that your body feels safe, but basically your body has to feel safe enough before the weight can come off. Yes. And then the weight comes off and then you get back to the weight that you were before you went on a diet, which again, like, I think this is really important because it says so much about why diets fail to begin with. Totally. Yeah. And I think you know, when I, when I listen to that and I look at that, it's like, I remember thinking at a certain point, a lot of people use the Minnesota starvation study as quote unquote proof that you can't lose weight, that it's like, it'll come off and then it'll come back on. And it's like, yeah, for sure. If you're so dramatically like cutting your calories that you're putting your body in a state of starvation, it makes all the sense in the world that you're brain body system is going to put on the weight plus some because it thinks you're in a famine and blah, 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 things I've explained here many times. But 
that to me, and again, this will probably speak to the second half of the episode, that to me doesn't suggest that long-term weight loss is not possible, period. It means if you initiate weight loss by putting yourself into what your brain believes is a famine, that attempt at weight loss is not possible. It's like, it's not, it's not black or white. It's just, it really depends. So like you said, the weight comes back on because again, it has to to support you and make sure that you're safe and alive. But that doesn't mean that you just keep gaining and gaining and gaining and gaining weight forever. It does mean, and the same exact thing happened to me. My weight loss was so dramatic and unhealthy. And then I gained probably 20, like around 30 pounds from my lowest, lowest, lowest. And I like stabilized naturally. I didn't go all the way back up to over 300 pounds. I, my body needed to feel safe. I got my period again. And that was like the sign that I was recovering, but I had to put on like 20 pounds before I got my period again. So anyway, it's just so not black and white, but that's the Minnesota starvation study. And those are the things it makes all the sense in the world made a huge impact on you recovering where you were. Like, those are the things I think everyone struggling with any kind of disordered eating needs to know that there's there is science behind that okay I just wanted to mention the period thing because that seems so important and I don't know how much it's talked about so I got my period really late I got my period when I was 16 and I had an eating disorder (laughs) um I never had a normal period And let's just say I talked about this last episode. I quote unquote looked normal and I didn't look not normal until I was 90 some pounds. Right. But I never had a normal period. And then when I started the refeeding process, my period came back. I've had a normal period since I was 30 now. And like, that's shouldn't feel crazy but it is crazy because literally no doctor was like, you know, Julie, are you eating enough? I hear you. Thank you for sharing that. So same. So same. I remember when I saw my doctor, um, one of many doctors, cause I didn't understand what was going on with me. Like, why did I feel so sick and shitty all the time? Um, and it was cause I was starved and malnourished and none of them had any interest in what I was eating. They were very excited about my weight loss. And I remember at the time, like the OBGYN I was seeing, I was like, I'm not getting a period. Um, And it had been for some time. Like it had been over a year probably. Um, I think I didn't have a period for like two years. And at that time, I remember saying to her, uh, you know, I'm not menstruating and I don't know why. And she was like, okay, here's a prescription for the pill. Like it was like, it it wasn't even a conversation. It wasn't, there was, there were no questions asked. It was, you're not getting a period. I know how to give you one, get on birth control. And that was the moment that I was like, I actually, I remember like filling it, filling the prescription and then like looking at the little pack of pills. Cause I was on birth control when I was younger, I had gotten off. It had been years. And I remember just kind of like looking at it being like, it almost felt intuitively like my body was like rejecting it. It was like, even before I think I took any of it, I was like, if my female human body is not producing a menstruation cycle, 
this is like the definition of a band-aid solution. I'm not going to just start taking a pill so that all this goes away. And I remember just very mindfully choosing not to do that. But what it required was that I had to put weight on my body. And then I, I, oh my God, you probably have a similar story. I remember the day I like saw my period and I was like, I win at recovery. <laughs> like I did it. I made it here. And I was so grateful because I, there was a part of me that was a little bit afraid I was going to like finally get my period and be like, fuck, you know, I don't like, I want, I would like that part of me that was like clinging to the eating disorder and clinging to being so thin and in control, quote unquote, that I was like, there was a part of me that, you know, that didn't want to get it because that's always the duality of recovery. I want to recover and I also want my thing that keeps me safe. And I remember feeling so grateful that when I saw it, I was like, yes, I made it here. Like my body is doing what it's designed to do again because I chose recovery. And that brings me back to what you were saying last time. It's a conscious decision to say, if what my body needs is weight gain, I will choose that for the sake of long-term health and well-being. Okay. Ugh. I haven't thought about that in a minute. <laughs> okay. So now, now you can continue with your story. You're learning about intuitive eating. You're learning about weight science, all the things. You're learning basically you have to gain weight because that's what your body needs at this chapter in this time of your recovery. Then what happens? You start, you know, working through it. So I talked last time about how the weight gain was just awful. And I I still felt pretty confused about food and eating. I knew that I had to eat. Um, I remember trying to force myself to eat vegetables. Um, I had to stop seeing my dietitian because she kept weighing me and I asked her to stop. And it was like, I remember this time when she was like, and I must have been into five months in. She's like, you gained four pounds this week. And I was like, why are you telling me this? Mm -hmm. um, but, Did you at that point have um, like a meal plan or something? Or were you like on your own trying to figure out how to eat and how much to eat? I, so here's the thing. I never had a meal plan. So because I saw someone who specialized in intuitive eating, it was just like, try to get this stuff in a day. And that's it. So it was very much self-directed. And this is also sad, but so relatable. I think I thought that if I had a dietitian, she could control how much weight I gained. Yeah. So, <laughs> so valid. <laughs> okay. Well, this is, this is also like fascinating to me because when you say, you know, you're working with someone who's like, try to get this stuff every day. Are you, is this stuff referring to like certain nutrients or is it a number of calories or both? It was never calories. It was like have fruit in the morning, have protein, have this, have that, but really just a very loose design of like, here are some groups of food that maybe you should try to incorporate in your day. Okay. How do you like looking back? I'm just so curious, like, how do you feel about the fact that you were largely self-directed? It was really terrifying. Yeah. Um, so my situation was so strange because I had a couple people that thought that maybe I should have been 
hospitalized, well, not hospitalized, put in residential. And I remember my therapist at the time said that he thought that residential would be horrible for me. And it would have been. Um, so I'm glad I didn't go. However, the lack of structure made things so terrifying. Dude, I, I seriously, I can only imagine. The reason I'm asking you that is because I remember for me, I, right after my weight loss had, I had a tummy tuck surgery. So I was like, uh, for two something weeks bedridden after, you know, doing like an hour plus of cardio every day for a year and a half or whatever it was. And I remember, I've shared this story here before, but it like, I, I will never forget it right after my surgery, like immediately after when I couldn't eat anything, they gave me the little saltine crackers in the hospital. The first thought going through my head was how many calories are in the saltine crackers. Like I was so fucked up around food at that point. Anyway, a couple of weeks go by, right? My body's healing from like a major surgery and I was terrified to eat anything because I wasn't moving and also because I was terrified of eating. And so anyway, this is where I connected with my mom's friend who is a nutritionist, who is the first person to say to me, you're actually in starvation mode. You have to release the goal of weight loss right now. You're not even getting a period. We need to restore your body. And I was for the summer, I was like, I'll take it from here. I get it. I have to like work out a little less. But after that surgery happened, so that conversation was in May and then June, July, August went by in August is when I had a conversation with her. And she specifically said to me, these are eating disorder tendencies. And this is the way that I treat my anorexic patients. And she gave me a plan. And it wasn't exactly what to eat every day. But it was very intentional. You must eat at least this many calories every day. And it was, I needed that. I needed that. Because if I didn't personally have a professional being like, you must eat this much, I wouldn't have. I straight up would not have done it. And so I think about, obviously, you know, when it comes to things like weight loss, I'm not pro meal plan. But when it comes to things like recovery, I'm very pro meal plan because, I mean, I, I needed, I would never, first of all, I would have never known what to do. I needed the support. I needed the accountability. I needed everything about being on a phone with a nutritionist every day saying you must make sure you eat this many calories. And then I was also on the phone once a week with my therapist talking about how much I hated eating all these calories and how terrified I was all the time. And all the feelings that came up about it. But in hindsight, I truly don't know what the fuck I would have done without both of them holding my hand through it all. So I just I'm like I'm processing the fact that you had to like attempt navigating that by yourself. It was really hard, but I think that I knew somewhere inside what I had to do. And basically my body was telling me what I had to do because I couldn't stop eating. Right. Uh, so that was part of it. But yeah, I think I mentioned this last time that when I would eat a meal, I would think I was going to die. So I would have to speak to myself and talk myself through eating. And it was horrible. And it's really strange now that I eat in front of people and I don't think. <laughs> yeah. Um. That like eating isn't a weird thing to me, whereas you know, whatever this was, 2018, it was like 
eating in public. My God. Yeah. Oh man. I have so many feels. Every time I like get brought back to the experience of how terrifying it was, I just like, I just, I have so many feelings. It makes me so emotional because I know, like my body knows, you know, that terror and what it took over and over and over again to like talk to myself, like literally talk myself off a ledge so I could finish a meal. And that is, that is the work. Okay. So that's how recovery goes. Anything else? Yeah. Like then what, you know? So my weight stabilized. I was eating around the same amount of calories every day. Um, really angry that I was that big, quote unquote, right? And wondering when that part of the Minnesota starvation study was going to start when the weight started coming off. And I would just want that to happen every day. Um, and what I did notice, though, was something that people told me would happen that I didn't believe was that, like, you don't gain weight forever and you don't eat 10,000 calories a day forever, right? It all stabilizes and normalizes metabolism heals. And so my metabolism did heal. And then I reached a point where I started to try to wear clothes that made me feel pretty again, which felt good. It also felt weird because like, you know, my size is much bigger than it was when, whenever I was a bigger size mm -hmm. and but I actually started to feel okay. And then I got to the point where my weight was pretty stable and then we can get into the next part. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. I mean, again, it just, it makes so much sense to me anyway, like intuitively it's like, okay, you were in a place of restriction, starvation, malnourishment, of course, your body, which like at the end of the, like we're animals, right? Like, of course, if you starve an animal and then you give it unlimited amounts of food, like it's going to eat a lot and it's going to gain a lot of weight. Like, yes. Then things start to shift a little bit. Okay. So then what happens? So I moved to California and uh, COVID hit and I am living alone. I went through a breakup and I didn't really realize, but I started, I don't, I don't know if you call it binge, but like I started eating too much at night. Yeah. And I was really lonely and depressed. Right. And this is something normal that happens for people when they're lonely and depressed. But for me, this was like not a normal thing. Right. Yeah. And I think this is where we get into the nuances of what you and I were going to talk about where my understanding at the time is like, you just deal with this. Your weight does what it does. You eat what you eat. Emotional eating is fine. Emotional eating is fine. It's fine. But if you feel sick when you go to bed every night, it doesn't feel fine, right? Like I've always had this way of being that people find really funny. Like I have snacks around me at all times, usually like in my bed, usually in my hair, like... <laughs> So I'd wake up in my bed alone with my cat and I'd have, you know, all my cookies and candy next to me and I would feel kind of sick when I woke up. But, you know, 
it's like I was living in San Diego. I knew almost no one. I worked online at home, right? Like I didn't have places to go or people to see other than on Zoom. And I just, I wasn't feeling great. I was really depressed. And then I sort of got to this place where I'm like, I don't like feeling gross when I go to bed. I don't feel like eating all of this candy at night is doing anything for me and my clothes don't fit. Mm -hmm. So the thing with this whole intuitive eating thing, anti-diet that you and I were talking more about is a movement versus like a living your body thing. It's like in that you're not supposed to, you're not supposed to eat less. You're not supposed to want your clothes to fit. You're just supposed to go out and this is my understanding. You're supposed to just go buy bigger clothes. Yes. Well, I consider myself fully recovered from my eating disorder. I don't think that I'm at risk for relapse. I decided to eat less. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Mine quite as intentional the way when I listened to you talk about it. Like yours was like very much like I really thought about deeply about this. Mine was just like, I think I need to eat less. I think I need to do some things differently. Um, so the first iteration was like I went on antidepressants. And guess what? I ate less because I was less depressed. Yep. And this is something that really pisses me off about people thinking about antidepressants that they cause weight gain. They really don't. They just don't. <laughs> you say more about that for a sec. If you are underweight when you take antidepressants and you start feeling better and you eat more, you're gonna gain weight. If you're on if you're depressed and you've been eating too much, you will lose weight. I mean, this is a very not nuanced, very not medical understanding, but this is Julie Markwitz's understanding of what happens. Right. Well, I think whether or not it's like they do or don't cause weight gain in a vacuum, it's like if you're engaging in something like antidepressants, you also might want to just consider your relationship with food like as as a piece of the puzzle, because I agree with you that very often it's like i'm i'm taking this medication it made me gain weight i'm taking this medication it made me lose weight and it's like but is there any consciousness of like what you're doing around food when you're on or off this medication that will also have a direct impact on your weight so it's it's just adding it to you know all of the contributing factors um okay thank you for sharing all of that so what i also want to know and before i even ask you another question I so hear you and I so appreciate you sharing this and being here because this is in some ways so similar to my own experience and my own story. That is like I lost a lot of weight in a way that was not at all healthy. I needed to recover, repair my body, come back and get my period again, eat when I'm hungry, stop when I'm full, stabilize. And I stabilized like I really did at for years I didn't feel like 
you know, I was struggling around food. I wasn't restricting food. I never get on a scale. I was just kind of like living the way that I wanted to. Then very similarly, unrelated to all of that, you know, and like, obviously there's a relationship with the past and everything I've experienced, but like unrelated to all of that. Then I go through quite a fucking year mentally, emotionally. I also went through a breakup, like living alone in a new city, all the things. And like my good friend food came back and made its way back into my repertoire <laughs> of coping strategies, like shocking to no one. And I think there's actually something like really amazing and beautiful. At least I felt this way where I was using food emotionally again, which I hadn't done in a long, long time. And there was a part of me that was like, oh my God, I'm doing like a normal thing. This is like a normal thing that people do. And I must be so embodied in recovery <laughs> that I'm even allowing myself to use food as a coping mechanism. Like that I could even be in this quote unquote normal struggle the way that people experience food and eating. It was like, again, another moment of like, I made it. I'm so recovered that I'm struggling with food again in like a very different way, you know? So I think that's just, again, important context because then at that point, it's like, okay, all right, all right, all right. I believe in intuitive eating. I want to honor my body. I eat when I'm hungry. I stop when I'm full. I'm not getting on a scale. I'm not measuring things. And these behaviors are really not working for me. And part of the reason I know these behaviors aren't working for me is because I can't fit into any of my fucking clothes. So, okay, okay. So I want to do something about it. Does it immediately make it an eating disorder? No. Does it mean that it's necessarily harmful? No. This is where it really depends on the individual person and where they are in their journey. So tell me about then... What was it like for you to consider eating less and like doing something about it? Did it feel like, yeah, how how did that go for you as someone who has a history of struggling with disordered eating? Um, like I'd say at first it didn't feel super great in terms of like, you know, this like I have to do something about this. I think when it got better was just like when I was emotionally feeling better from, you know, therapy, antidepressants, everything. Um, but I stopped worrying about it because at first it's like that feeling of like that gung ho, like I have to make a change. Right. And it was like, I don't like that. I really don't do that anymore. I think I've a much healthier relationship with habit change than I used to. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was kind of like, okay, it feels better to eat less, but this isn't like a disordered way. This is like a, I don't feel sick when I go to bed at night type of thing. Yeah. And then I think what was really different about this time was that it wasn't like, oh, I need to keep losing weight. It was like my weight stabilized I again because I think I think I had gotten above my set point. And but what was interesting, and I don't know how much of this is true, right? But like I think I if I continued to eat that way, I would have stayed up there. 
And because I ate less, I lost more weight. I mean, not lost weight. Right. And then, you know, I think I generally know what my weight set point is because I think a lot of us don't understand it's like 20 pound window ish. Right. right. And so I felt better. Right. My clothes fit again. I was eating an amount that didn't feel too much in my body. Right. Not too much based on calories. Right. Too much. Like I would go to bed at night and not feel sick. <laughs> So that was good. I felt really good for a while. And then I got to another point that we can also talk about. Go for it. Okay. So the next point was I decided to stop drinking. Mm -hmm. And the unintended consequence of that was that I lost weight. And what I don't like about this part of the journey is that people started making comments. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, I probably lost another 10 pounds. So I probably lost like a total of 20 pounds between, you know, when I decided to take off weight and now, and people would be like, you look so great. Oh my God. Like, wow. What did you, and I'm like, I stopped drinking alcohol. Like, I mean, but what it, what makes what makes me mad about this, Lisa, is that people. I don't want people to tell me that I look like I lost weight. Right. And if you could, guys could see my face right now, I'm like rubbing my eyes and my temples because this is the part that makes me really angry. It, it makes me sad. It makes me angry that that's like what people notice because I stopped drinking alcohol right like <laughs> oh you you look so great because you lost weight it's like well I also stopped putting poison in my body mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. I know. Um, so I'm just like oh my god this is what I, I don't know I don't know what to do and but it also it feels good and it feels bad yeah and that's something I think I'm still in this weird place of how do I reconcile that? And the other complicated thing of where I am in my life right now is I'm getting married in March. And this was also really amazing because when I went dress shopping, it wasn't like, what am I going to look like when I lose weight? It's like, I'm buying this dress because it fits my body now and it will fit my body in X number of months. And when I went wedding dress shopping when I was in my 20s, they're like, just remember, like, you can't lose more weight before, like, right before. And I'm like, if someone said that to me now, I'd punch them in the face. Right. Right. <laughs> right. I know. I had a friend recently get married and that's that's what happened. She got her dress done. The woman was like, just don't put on a pound. And I was like, <laughs> even today, if I hear that, I'm like, I can't. What? It's ex I, I hear so, you. Uh, that happened to me like I I officially bought my real dress last week which is exciting. but I bought a dress that I thought I might wear back in November and I told the woman at the store like I couldn't gain a pound if I'm gonna wear this she's like you won't right 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 so like yeah 
This is like the 10th time so far that I'm like, oh, I wish everyone could see your facial expressions as you're having this conversation because <laughs> she's like hanging her head in her hands. Like it's I I know. And I, I may have mentioned this, but at one point I remember writing a blog, a blog post or whatever that I think still lives on my website somewhere uh, called Please Stop Telling Me I'm Thinner because it was exactly that, that I felt really like killing it in recovery and I was like feeling good and like honoring my body and myself not getting on the scale not counting my calories but there were definitely times where just naturally because life my weight would fluctuate I would have like a season of some weight loss and I was a personal trainer at a gym so like every single day someone had something to say about it and I just remember getting to a point where I was like I need I need everyone to stop telling me that I'm thinner and like making this whole thing a bit. I have to say, I'm actually grateful that at this point, because also, okay, everyone's been listening to these episodes about my intentional weight loss that has been effective and successful. The same thing has happened where just recently, like I think it was last week, someone at the gym said something to me. Um, she was like, now that you moved home, what did she say? She was like, you're getting thinner. Now that you moved home, I guess you have some time to exercise more or something like that. And I was like, Exactly. And and like it's it's both exactly what you said. And I, I want to give this permission so to everyone who's listening that it can feel both good and bad at the same time. And I think that's what's challenging where it's like, I don't know how to reconcile it. Is it good? Is it bad? Is it right? Is it right? Is it OK? It's it is what it is. To part of you, it feels good. Fine. To part of you, it feels really bad. Fine. They can all coexist together. You know why? Because they are coexisting together. And that's totally okay. But it was it was exactly that. I had like a whole reaction inside. And I remember just being like, okay. <laughs> I don't know how you have the audacity to say something like that to someone, but got it. But it is, it's it's very challenging to live in the social context that we do when you're moving through something like this. I hear you. It is. It is. The other thing that just came up for me when you were talking about working out is that one of the big markers of my recovery is I started a, a yoga practice early 2022 and it was all about finding movement that felt good in my body. Like that was a whole new landscape that opened up mm -hmm. and my relationship with yoga and my body has gotten so much better because I do yoga because it feels good in my body and the one of the side effects of that is that I'm stronger and that, you know, I'm have more muscle tone. I didn't do that on purpose. It would have been fine if I did that on purpose too, but it's been really healing and lovely to have like this really nice relationship. Like I go to yoga and like, I have a roll of fat on my stomach and people can see that and it's okay. Right. It's, yeah. It's like, I don't feel that self-consciousness that I used to feel like I, during my early twenties, I did bar classes in New York and that was a horrible place to go for someone with an eating disorder. And all it was, was I just want to look the way the teachers look, right? Like I'm bigger than them. Like, how do I do that? Like, I don't, and it's just sad, right? Yeah. Now I don't really give a shit. Yeah. Which is really nice that I 
I finally found exercise that I do because it feels good, not because of how it's going to make me look. Yeah. Huge. That's another really big part of recovery. I think just in general for anyone who's listening to this. And again, I think that's another thing that really depends on where you are in your journey. Like at a certain point, if the only relationship that you have with exercise is that it's for weight loss, that's where it's like a really good place to introduce. What if it had nothing to do with weight loss? And it was just like all about how you felt mentally, emotionally, that will really shift things. And I'm really, I think it's also, there's such a soft spot in my heart also for yoga. And I did my yoga teacher training a couple of years ago, actually, when I was in California. And I just also want to very explicitly plug that for anyone who's listening. If you're like struggling with food and eating in your body in any way, and you have no relationship with yoga at all, totally okay to live the rest of your life and not engage in yoga. And also, it is absolutely one of, if not the number one healing thing that I have experienced, period, ever in my life around my relationship with food and eating in my body, but my relationship with life and be and being a human. And I, you know, I, I can tell, I can like feel the people who are listening to this who are like real yogis, like nodding hardcore. But it's, I just, I, I, that's a very, very important um, practice that you're bringing up that I, I just want to take a moment to really honor. So yeah. thank you. Yeah. Thanks for saying that, Lisa, because it, I had such a fucked up relationship with exercise. Uh, I think I mentioned that I was a figure skater and I have been obsessed with exercise since I was a very little kid. And I never had a form of movement that felt good in my body. Yeah. And it wasn't just about weight loss or anything. It was always about like, this is something I have to do. Right. Um, when I started yoga, it was awful because I felt really dysregulated and really triggered by being in class with people and all of that stuff. And then the more I was able to settle in and start focusing on myself instead of everyone else, yeah. it got a lot better. And now I go to yoga with the intention of presence, calming my nervous system, just regulation. And I find when I don't do it, I don't feel as good. Yep. And I, I have found that there's this really nice thing that's happened where I get excited about being stronger. Um, which like before it was always like, how do I look? What is this doing? I had actually done powerlifting for a while and I didn't find that had an, an effect like this has at all. Um, this feels so different rounding. It's really good for someone with a nervous system. Like I do, like who has a lot of bad energy in their body at all times. Yeah. Yeah. No, I hear, I hear you completely. And it reminds me again of like what we've already said in multiple different ways where it's like, I think about the first yoga class I went to and I was like, I hate this. I hate this. And then I also remember leaving that class and buying a package of 10 more and being like, I don't know, like, what's happening. I just, like, But I remember 
very mindfully being like, okay, I hate this. All right, cool. You're allowed to hate it. Why do you hate it? And it was all ego because I don't know what I'm doing because I feel like a beginner because everyone's better than me because I'm not the best because I can't foresee what's going to happen next because it requires that I sit still because I, it was all these things. And I remember looking at all these thoughts that came up and being like, okay, so we have to come back. Like if this is the way that you're relating to yoga, this is the way you're relating to a lot of other things in your life that require you to be present and not have all the answers and have a beginner's mind. And this, and I was like, all right. And I just kept doing that thing of like, I'm not avoiding the trigger. I'm not avoiding the discomfort. I'm looking at why it makes me uncomfortable. And these are all things that I would benefit from working on. So I'm going to keep walking back into that room over and over and over and over and over again. And then eventually I fell in love and did teacher training and this and that. And there's like a million bajillion other things that I'm sure both of us could say about it. But I get very excited when I hear about um, the hybrid of like eating disorder recovery with yoga and things like that, because um, it's 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 just really life changing. And it reminds me a lot of uh I was thinking about this quote. I remember years ago, I talked I talked about going to sleepaway camp with this, but I think it really applies to yoga too, where it's like on the outside looking in, you can't understand it. But from the inside looking out, you can't explain it. And it's like that to me was so the relationship with yoga. Whereas like when I was on the outside of it, I was like, all right, whatever. But now that it's it's really made such a huge impact on my life, my healing, my recovery, everything it's like it's it's not even possible to put into words so i just big big plug if you're out there go <laughs> to something to go explore okay julie this is it's hard it's hard because i literally could talk to you forever about so many things but i like to be mindful of the time okay is there anything that feels very present for you that we didn't cover yet in this conversation. So if you're talking about your recovery and intuitive eating and intentional weight loss, anything around that you just want to like add or clarify? Yeah, I think I want to clarify just that something and reiterate what you were saying is just that it's like we all have our own process around it and it takes a lot of time and you can't just rush to certain phases and you also don't know if you're going to get to a particular phase, right? I never thought that I'd get to a phase where I felt comfortable losing weight or that I felt, or that I wouldn't get into a weird relationship with it, I guess, or that I would actually get to a place where I had a movement practice that I didn't have a fucked up relationship with. Right? Yeah. I couldn't have done that in 2018, right? And I don't think recovery looks one way and I know that that maybe sound might sound cliche but you know when I started my disorder recovery there were all these rules supposedly that people during refeeding are supposed to follow I never stopped exercising I never did lots of the things that people are supposed to do and I am where I am today and I'm really proud of my recovery I feel really good that I can look at weight loss things on Instagram and I don't give a shit. Right. right. You know, right. that's all. Amen. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing all of this. It's really, I'm very proud of you too. And I'm so celebrating your 
recovery and health and healing and growth and everything that has come from the whole journey. It's it's really big and it's very inspiring and very powerful to listen to. And I'm so excited to share it with everyone. And I just, again, I mean, at this point, I understand I'm being redundant, but I'm going to say it anyway, because I think it's so important. And it's funny because now I know these episodes are coming out after Dr. Wiss's episode. And Dr. Wiss and I were talking about how his, he was like, going to 2024, my new mantra is bring back nuance, like bring nuance back into the conversation and how the culture has become so polarized, right? It's either intuitive eating, anti-diet or intentional weight loss. It's diet culture or anti-diet culture. It's like, it's so black and white. And then we have these like really incredible in-depth conversations about how it really doesn't need to be that way. And in fact, given the laws of nature, it is not that way. It just isn't. So at any point, if you're listening to this and you're finding yourself, you know, in in one camp or the other, feeling like there's a lot of voices in your head about the right way to do it and the wrong way to do it. And it's just like, remember, <laughs> friendly invitation to remember all of that's an illusion. It's not that's not on it. That's someone else's opinion. And it's it's OK. I have plenty of those voices in my head, but let's bring nuance back into this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Tell us again where we can find you, follow you, work with you, et cetera, please. My website is juliemarkwoodstherapy.com. My Instagram is julie underscore markwoods underscore therapy. Am I missing anything? I think that's, I think it. that's it. We will find you there. Thank you. Until next time, you're, you're coming back. I already know it. I appreciate it. Over and out.